one true and living God. Amen. I've always been puzzled by the presence of the devil in the account of the temptations of Jesus. It seemed to me that someone called and anointed by God should be tested to see if he were worthy of the call. After all, religion attracts people who are bogus, charlatans, shams, and downright evil schemers. We need to be protected from the damage they do, and testing them is the best way we have. Today's account of the temptations is the second half of a story we heard the first part of some time ago. I'm thinking of Jesus' baptism. Now Jesus, like many others, had gone to the Jordan River to receive from John the baptism he was promising, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You may wonder why Jesus felt he needed this forgiveness, but that's a subject for another sermon. What happened to Jesus when he went down into the Jordan was certainly not what John said would happen and was beyond anything Jesus might have expected. He had this overwhelming experience the brightness of the celestial realm breaking in upon him, why it was as if the firmament had opened and the very Spirit of God had enveloped him with an ineffable and tender presence. A divine voice spoke directly to Jesus within the midst of this brightness, calling him, My beloved Son, in whom I delight. These words... Jesus would have known because they come from Psalm 2, but he'd never imagined them spoken directly to him. The brightness of a glory from on high had broken in upon Jesus, but its meaning wasn't yet clear. So Jesus had to learn two things, what his baptism meant and what it didn't mean. To determine these two crucial things, God's Spirit took Jesus. No, that's too mild a word for it. The Spirit thrust him into the wilderness. No water for the journey, no food, why not even a sleeping bag? Now those of you who visited Israel will know the wilderness that begins a few miles to the south of Jerusalem and borders the Jordan River. It is an empty region, sandy and desolate, barren of trees, traversed by deep wadis or arroyos that have been carved by sudden violent rainstorms, a terrain of scorpions, snakes, and leaping ibis now, and in Jesus' day, the haunt of cougars and lions. Into that desolate place, Jesus was brought by the Spirit. Now, if there's one truth that's essential to follow in determining the authenticity of someone who would be God's servant, God's anointed, it's summed up in a book by another Jesus 
the book is called Ecclesiasticus, where in the second chapter you can read, My son, if you aspire to be a servant of the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. But a verse later, these words were written, Trust in God, and God will help you. So along with the testing comes God's presence and help. Testing will become the other part of the glorious experience Jesus had at his baptism. Why Jesus, once he'd had this overwhelming experience during his baptism, could have told all and sundry about it, drawing to him crowds of the curious and gullible. He could have written a book about the experience, been a favorite on the religious talk shows, perhaps even running for office. Would Jesus do such things? He had to be tested to find out. That's why God's Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, the place where God's people have always been tested, to discover if he could bear the weight of the revelation offered him. So this testing, then, isn't a diabolical temptation at all but a divine discernment initiated by the Almighty and put under the protection of God's Spirit. Once there in the wilderness, Jesus had plenty of time to contemplate the meaning of his baptism and what it really meant to be God's beloved Son. As Jesus wandered in the wilderness, images of possible ways to live out his servanthood came to mind. Each was a travesty of servanthood, but Jesus needed to face them, to cast them aside. One was to be a great crowd-pleaser wonder-worker, the man who filled the bellies of his followers, making them follow in his footsteps to experience ever new revelations of his uncanny ability to please them. Why, he turns stones into bread. We will never need to grow wheat again, nor bake bread. Jesus needs only to imagine such a fraud to reject it. And scripture confirms his resolve. We do not live by bread only. There's another trap that comes to Jesus' mind, and many are those who thought themselves holy who failed to escape it. Jesus reaches some height in the wilderness where he can see off into a great distance, maybe even to the walls of Jerusalem. And that leads him to think of the kingdoms of this world and what power would be accumulated and wielded if one were their master and conqueror. How lovely it would be to have the nations fall at his feet to grovel and fawn and worship. In his day, there were plenty of such leaders. The distant Roman emperor, for example, and near to hand, Herod, so-called the Great. Recoiling at the thought in disgust, Jesus is sustained by scripture. You shall do homage to the Lord your God and worship God alone. 
Jesus is thinking about the temple in Jerusalem and the topmost part of it, the parapet. Why, what would people think if he were to decide to jump from it, knowing you could count on God and God's angels to keep you from falling? The crowds would come flocking, hysterical in their excitement to see God's servant as the showman, the great exhibition as the ultimate circus trick, pulling his stunts by testing and abusing God's protection. Jesus rejected these three temptations to be a fake religious leader. Instead of being a true servant of God, the real anointed, the Messiah who didn't ride on a white horse like a conquering thug, but the servant who triumphed through suffering. If Jesus had cast aside the meaning and promise of his baptism and decided to become a panderer to the desires of a hungry and ignorant public, we wouldn't need him, and we'd never have heard of him. No, the Messiah is not a showman, convincing people by trickery and astonishment, and Jesus needed to be tested to find out if that's what Jesus proposed doing. Were Jesus to fall for all this, we'd wait instead for a Messiah who's real. The servant, the hymn St. Paul quotes, sings of, who made himself nothing, assuming the form of a slave, who was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. To reveal this man who made himself nothing, the temptations in the wilderness were set up to test and to prove. And the whole process of this testing was initiated by God's Spirit. And throughout those days in the wilderness, the Spirit supported and sustained Jesus in his struggle. We don't need the devil to explain this. You'll have noticed the ominous verse that concludes today's gospel. And the devil departed abiding his time. For Jesus' testing didn't end there in the wilderness. It was there constantly tugging at him. The temptation to forsake what it was truly to be the Messiah came out of the blue when Peter blurts out in a moment of divine inspiration, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus, realizing the danger to his soul and the souls of all those who heard this and would have gladly told all Galilee about it, says to puzzled Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. And you'll remember how Jesus angrily commanded the spirits who inhabited those who were mentally ill, who pressed in on him not to say who he really was. And at the very end, when Jesus, weak with exhaustion and inner torment, kneeling there in the garden of Gethsemane, catching out of the corner of his eye the approaching soldiers carrying their flickering torches, prayed to God to take this cup of suffering from him. And then in the next breath, 
he banishes this thought, saying, Yet not my will, but your will be done. It is good that this testing goes on through our own lives as well. New circumstances bring new testing. New challenges bring testing as well. The tests that I had to undergo when I was young and a young priest give way to new temptations and new tests now that I am old. Churches have the same testing to undergo too, and about this we know a lot here at All Souls. But we should never fear when these tests come. They are not diabolical at all. They are gifts from God to strengthen us and to make us make more true what God sees in us and desires in us to become. And with God working in this way in us and for us, we need not be anxious either, for it will yield the beautiful result of making our ministries truer, more authentic, and more transparently touched by God. We will become, as individual Christians, and as the fellowship of the Church, more and more who God wants us to be. Amen.